0: SECTION 2 OF THE BLACK DOG AND OTHER STORIES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE BLACK DOG AND OTHER STORIES by A. E. Copard. THE BLACK DOG PART 3 in the afternoon, Orianda drove Gerald in the gig back to the station to fetch the baggage. Well, what success, Orianda? He asked as they jogged along. It would be perfect, but for Lizzie. That was rather a blow. But I should have foreseen her. Lizzies are inevitable, and she is difficult. She weeps. But oh, I am glad to be home again, Gerald. I feel I shall not leave it ever. Yes, Orianda,' he protested. Leave it for me. I'll give your nostalgia a little time to fade. I think it was a man named Pater said, All life is a wandering to find home. You don't want to omit the wandering. Not if I have found my home again. A home with Lizzie? No, not with Lizzie. She flicked the horse with the whip. I shall be too much for Lizzie. Lizzie will resume her wandering. She's as stupid as a wax widow in a show. Nathaniel is tired of Lizzie, and Lizzie of Nathaniel, the two wretches. But I wish she did not weep. Gerald had not observed any signs of tearfulness in Lizzie at the midday dinner. On the contrary, she seemed a rather jolly creature. Not that she had spoken much beyond, Yes, Nathaniel, no, Nathaniel, or Gerald, or Orianda, as the case had been.' Her use of his Christian name, which had swept him at once into the bosom of the family, shocked him rather pleasantly, but he did not know what had taken place between the two women. Perhaps Lizzie had already perceived and tacitly accepted her displacement. He was wakened next morning by unusual sounds, chatter of magpies in the front trees and the ching of hammers on a bulk of iron at the smithy. Below his window a brown terrier stood on its barrel barking at a goose. Such common simple things had power to please him, and for a few days everything at the Black Dog seemed planned on this scale of novel enjoyment. The old inn itself, the log-yard, harvesting, the chatter of the evening topers, even the village Sunday delighted him with its parade of Phyllis and Curridon. Although it is true Phyllis wore a pink frock stockings of faint blue and walked like a man, while Corridon had a bowler hat and walked like a bear. He helped Thaniel with axe, hammer, and plane, but best of all was to serve mugs of beer nightly in the bar, and to drop the coins into the drawer of money. The rest of the time he spent with Orianda, whom he wooed happily enough, though without establishing any marked progress— They roamed in fields and in copses, lounged in lanes, looking at things and idling deliciously, at last returning home to be fed by Lizzie, whose case somehow hung in the air, faintly deflecting the perfect stream of felicity. In their favourite glade a rivulet was joined by a number of springs bubbling from a pool of sand and rock. Below it the enlarged stream was dammed into a small lake once used for turning a mill— but now since the mill was dismantled, covered with arrowheads and lily leaves surrounded by inclining trees, bushes of rich green growth, terraces of willow herb whose fairy-like pink steeples Orianda called codlins and cream, and catmint with knobs of agreeable odour, a giant hornbeam tree had fallen and lay half buried in the lake, this and the black poplars whose vacillating leaves underscored the solemn clamour of the outfall gave to it the very serenity of desolation. Here they caught sight of the two woodpeckers bathing in the springs, a cock and his hen who had flown away yaffling, leaving a pretty mottled feather tinged with green floating there. It was endless pleasure to watch each spring bubble upwards from a pouch of sand that spread smoke-like in the water turning each cone into a midget Vesuvius. A wasp crawled laboriously along a flat rock lying in the pool. It moved weakly as if marooned like a mariner upon some unknown isle. It could find no way of escape. Only this isle was no bigger than a dish in an ocean as small as a cartwheel. The wasp seemed to have forgotten that it had wings. It creepingly examined every inch of the rock until it came to a patch of dried dung. Proceeding still as wearily, it paused upon a dead leaf until a breeze blew leaf and insect into the water. The wasp was overwhelmed by the rush from the bubbles, but at last it emerged, clutching the woodpecker's floating feather, and dragged itself into safety as a swimmer heaves himself into a boat. In a moment it preened its wings, flew back to the rock, and played at Crusoe again. Orianda picked the feather from the pool. What a fool that wasp is, declared Gerald. I wonder what it is doing. Oriander, placing the feather in his hat, told him it was probably wandering to find home. One day, brightest of all days, they went to picnic in the marshes, a strange place to choose, all rank with the musty smell of cattle and populous with grasshoppers that bird below you and millions, quadrillions of flies that buzzed above. But Oriander loved it. The vast area of coarse pasture harboured not a single farmhouse, only a shed here and there marking a particular field for a thousand shallow brooks flowed like veins from all directions into the arterial river, moving through its silent leagues. Small frills of willow curving on the river Brink, and elsewhere a temple of lofty elms offered the only refuge from sun or storm— Store cattle roamed unchecked from field to field, and in the shade of gaunt rascally bushes sheep were nestling. Green reeds and willow herb followed the watercourses with endless efflorescence. Beautiful, indeed. In the late afternoon they had come to a spot where they could see their village three or four miles away, but between them lay the inexorable barrier of the river without a bridge— There was a bridge, miles away to the right. They had crossed it earlier in the day, and there was another bridge on the left, but that was also miles distant. Now what are we to do? asked Orianda. She wore a white muslin frock, a country frock, and a large straw hat with poppies, a country hat. They approached a column of trees. In the soft, smooth wind the foliage of the willows was tossed into delicate greys. "'Orianda said they looked like codchy heads on spindly necks. "'She would like to shy at them, but she was tired. "'I know what we could do.' "'Orianda glanced around at the landscape, trees, and bushes. "'The river was narrow, though deep, "'not more than forty feet across, and had high banks. "'You can swim, Gerald.' "'Yes, Gerald could swim rather well. "'Then let's swim it, Gerald, and carry our own clothes over.' "'Can you swim, Orianda?' "'Yes, Orianda could swim rather well.' "'All right, then,' he said. "'I'll go down here a little way.' "'Oh, don't go far. I don't want you to go far away, Gerald,' and she added softly. "'My dear.' "'No, I won't go far,' he said, and sat down behind a bush a hundred yards away. Here he undressed, flung his shoes one after the other across the river and swimming on his back, carried his clothes over in two journeys. As he sat drying in the sunlight, he heard a shout from Orianda. He peeped out and saw her sporting in the stream quite close below him. She swam with a graceful overarm stroke that tossed a spray of drops behind her and launched her body as easily as a fish's. Her hair was bound in a handkerchief. She waved a hand at him. "'You've done it! Bravo! What courage! Wait for me, lovely!' She turned away like an eel, and at every two or three strokes she spat into the air a gay little fountain of water. How extraordinary she was! Gerald wished he had not hurried. By and by he slipped into the water again and swam upstream. He could not see her. "'Have you finished?' he cried. "'I have finished, yes.' Her voice was close above his head. She was lying in the grass, her face propped between her palms, smiling down at him. He could see bare arms and shoulders. Got your clothes across? Of course. All dry? She nodded. How many journeys? I made two. Two, said Oriander briefly. You're all right, then. He wafted a kiss, swam back, and dressed slowly. Then, as she did not appear, he wandered along to her, humming a discreet and very audible hum as he went. When he came upon her, she still lay upon the grass, most scantily clothed. "'I beg your pardon,' he said hastily, and, full of surprise and modesty, walked away. The unembarrassed girl called after him, "'Drying my hair?' "'All right,' he did not turn round. Now, hurry.' "'But what sensations assailed him?' They aroused in his decent gentlemanly mind not exactly a tumult, but a flux of emotions, impressions, and qualms, doubtful emotions, incredible impressions, and torturing qualms. That alluring picture of Orianda, her errant father, the abandoned Lizzie. Had the water perhaps heated his mind, though it had cooled his body? He felt he would have to urge her, drag her, if need be, from this black dog. The setting was fair enough, and she was fair, but lovely as she was, not even she could escape the brush of its vulgarity, its plebeian pressure. And if all this has, or seems to have nothing or little enough to do with the drying of Orianda's hair, it is because the Honourable Gerald was accustomed to walk from grossness with an averted mind. "'Orianda,' said he, when she rejoined him, when are you going to give it up? You cannot stay here with Lizzie, can you? Why not? she asked sharply, tossing back her hair. I stayed with my mother, you know. That was different from this. I don't know how, but it must have been. She took his arm. Yes, it was. Lizzie, I hate, and poor stupid father loves her as much as he loves his axe or his hands or I hate her meekness, too. She has taken the heart out of everything. I must get her away. I see your need, Orianda, but what can you do? I shall lie to her. Lie like a libertine, and I shall tell her that my mother is coming home at once. No Lizzie could face that. He was silent. Poor Lizzie did not know that there was now no Mrs. Crappy. "'You don't like my trick, do you?' Oriander shook his arm caressingly. "'It hasn't any particular grandeur about it, you know.' Pooh! You shouldn't waste grandeur on clearing up a mess. This is a very dirty Eden.' "'No, all's fair, I suppose. But it isn't war, you dare, if that's what you mean. I'm only doing for them what they are naturally loth to do for themselves.' She pronounced the word loth as if it rhymed with moth. Lizzie, he said. I'm sure about Lizzie. I'll swear there is still some fondness in her funny little heart. It isn't love, though. She's just sentimental in her puffy kind of way. My dear Honourable, you don't know what love is. He hated her to use his title, for there was then always a breath of scorn in her tone. Just at odd times she seemed to be. "'Not vulgar, that was unthinkable. "'She seemed to display a contempt for good breeding,' he asked with a stiff smile. "'What is love? "'For me,' said Oriander, fumbling for a definition, "'for me it is a compound of anticipation and gratitude. "'When either of these two ingredients is absent, love is dead.' Gerald shook his head, laughing. "'It sounds like a malignant bolus that I shouldn't like to take.' I feel that love is just self-sacrifice. Apart from the taste of the thing, or the price of the thing, why and for what this anticipation, this gratitude? For the moment of passion, of course. Honour thy moments of passion, and keep them holy. But, oh, Gerald Laughlin,' she added mockingly, "'this you cannot understand, for you are not a lover. You are not, no, you are not even a good swimmer.' Her mockery was adorable, but baffling. "'I do not understand you,' he said. "'Now why in the whole world of images should she refer to his swimming? He was a good swimmer. He was silent for a long time, and then again he began to speak of marriage, urging her to give up her project and leave Lizzie in her simple peace. Then, not for the first time, she burst into a strange, perverse intensity that may have been love—' but might have been rage that was toned like scorn, and yet must have been a jest. "'Lovely, Gerald, you must never marry, Gerald. You are too good for marriage. All the best women are already married, yes they are, to all the worst men.' There was an infinite slow caress in her tone, but she went on rapidly, "'So I shall never marry you. How should I marry a kind man, a good man?' I am a barbarian and want a barbarian lover to crush and scarify me, but you are so tender and I am so crude. When your soft eyes look on me, they look on a volcano. "'I have never known anything half as lovely,' he broke in. Her sudden emotion, though controlled, was unconcealed, and she turned away from him. "'My love is a gentleman, but with him I should feel like a wild bee in a canary-cage.' "What are you saying?" cried Gerald, putting his arms around her. "Orianda, oh yes, we do love in a mezzo-tinted kind of way. You could do anything with me short of making me marry you. Anything, Gerald?" she repeated it tenderly. "Anything? But short of marrying me, I could make you do nothing." She turned from him again for a moment or two, then she took his arm as they walked on. She shook it and said chaffingly, And what a timid swimmer my Gerald is. But he was dead silent. That flux of sensations in his mind had taken another twist, fiery and exquisite. Like rich clouds they shaped themselves in the sky of his mind, fancy's bright towers with shining pinnacles. Lizzie welcomed them home. Had they enjoyed themselves? Yes, the day had been fine, and so they had enjoyed themselves. Oh, well, that was right. But throughout the evening Orianda hid herself from him, so he wandered almost distracted about the village until in a garth he saw some men struggling with a cow. Ropes were twisted around its horns and legs. It was flung to the earth. No countryman ever speaks to an animal without blaspheming it. "'although if he be engaged in some solitary work and inspired to music "'he invariably sings a hymn in a voice that seems to have "'some vague association with wood pulp. "'So they all blasphemed and shouted. "'One man with sore eyes, dressed in a coat of blue fustian "'and brown cord trousers, hung to the end of a rope "'at an angle of forty-five degrees. "'His posture suggested that he was trying to pull the head off the cow.' Two other men had taken turns of other rope "'around some stout posts, "'and one stood by with a handsaw. "'What are you going to do?' asked Gerald. "'Its horns be bent, you see,' said the man with the saw. "'They be going into its head, to blind or madden the beast.' "'So they blasphemed the cow "'and sawed off its crumpled horns. "'When Gerald went back to the inn, Oriander was still absent.' He sat down, but he could not rest. He could never rest now until he had won her promise. That lovely image in the river spat fountains of scornful fire at him. "'Do not leave me, Gerald,' she had said. He would never leave her. He would never leave her. But the men talking in the inn scattered his flying, fiery thoughts. They discoursed with a vacuity whose very endlessness was transcendent, "'Good God, was there ever a living person more magnificently inane than old Totel, the registrar! "'He would have inspired a stork to protest. "'Of course, a man of his age should not have worn a cap, a small one especially. "'Totel himself was small, and it made him look rumpled. "'He was bandy. "'His intellect was bandy, too.' "'Yes,' Mr. Totel was saying.' "'It's very interesting to see interesting things, "'no matter if it's man, woman, or an object. "'The most interesting man as I ever met in my life "'I met on my honeymoon years ago. "'He made a lifelong study of railways. "'That man knew him from Alpha to—to—to to, to what is it? "'A bed and a go, said someone. "'Yes, the trunk lines, the fares, the routes, "'the junctions of anywheres in England or Scotland "'or Ireland or Wales—' London, too, the underground. I tested him. Every station in correct order from South Kensington to King's Cross. A strange thing. Nothing to do with railways in himself. It was just his hobby. Was a Baptist minister, really, but still a most interesting man. Laughlin could stand it no longer. He hurried away into the garden. He could not find her. Into the kitchen. She was not there. He sat down, excited and impatient, but he must wait for her. He wanted to know, to know at once, how divinely she could swim. What was it he wanted to know? He tried to read a book there, a ragged, dusty volume about the polar regions. He learned that when a baby whale is born, it weighs at least a ton. How horrible! He rushed out into the fields full of extravagant melancholy and stupid distraction. That, all that was to be her life here. This was your rustic beauty, idiots and railways, boors who could choke an ox or chop off its horns, maddening doubts, maddening doubts, foul smelling rooms, darkness, indecency. She held him at arm's length still. "'But she was dove-like, and he was grappled to her soul with hoops of steel. "'Yes, indeed.' "'But soon this extravagance was allayed. "'Dim loneliness came imperceivably into the fields, and he turned back. "'The birds piped oddly. "'Some wind was caressing the higher foliage, turning it all one way, the way home. "'Telegraph poles ahead looked like half-used pencils,' The small cross on the steeple glittered with a sharp and shapely permanence. When he came to the inn, Orianda was gone to bed. Part Four The next morning an air of uneasy bustle crept into the house after breakfast, much going in and out and up and down in restrained perturbation. Orianda asked him if he could drive the horse and trap to the station. Yes, he thought he could drive it. "'Lizzy is departing,' she said. "'There are her boxes and things. It is very good of you, Gerald, if you will be so kind. It is a quiet horse.' Lizzie then had been subdued. She was faintly affable during the meal, but thereafter she had been silent. Gerald could not look at her until the last dreadful moment had come and her things were in the trap. Goodbye, Thaniel, she said to the innkeeper and kissed him. Goodbye, Orianda, and she kissed Orianda, and then climbed into the trap beside Gerald, who said click click, and away went the nag. Lizzie did not speak during the drive, perhaps she was in tears. Gerald would have liked to comfort her, but the nag was unusually spirited and clacked so freshly along that he did not dare turn to the sorrowing woman. They trotted down from the uplands and into the windy road over the marshes. The church spire in the town ahead seemed to change its position with every turn of that twisting route. It would have a background now of high, sour-hued down, now of dark woodland, anon of nothing but sky and cloud. In a few miles further there would be the sea. Hereabouts there were no trees, few houses, the world was vast and bright— the sky vast and blue. What was prettiest of all was a windmill turning its fans steadily in the draught from the sea. When they crossed the river, its slaty, slow-going flow was broken into blue waves. At the station, Lizzie dismounted without a word, and Gerald hitched the nag to a tree. A porter took the luggage and labelled it while Gerald and Lizzie walked about the platform. A calf with a sack over its loins, tied by the neck to a pillar, was bellowing deeply. Lizzie let it suck at her fingers for a while, but at last she resumed her walk and talked with her companion. "'She's a fine young thing, clever, his daughter. I'd do anything for her, but for him I've nothing to say. What can I say? What could I do? I gave up a great deal for that man, Mr. Laughlin. "'I'd better not call you Gerald any more now. A great deal. I knew he'd had trouble with his wicked wife, and now to take her back after so many years, it's beyond me. I know how he hates her. I gave up everything for him. I gave him what he can't give back to me, and he hates her, you know?' "'No, I did not know. I don't know anything of this affair.' "'Now, of course, you would not know anything of this affair,' said Lizzie with a sigh. "'I don't want to see him again. I'm a fool, but I've got my pride, and that's something to the good. It's almost satisfactory, ain't it?' As the train was signalled she left him and went into the booking-office. He marched up and down, her sad case affecting him with sorrow. The poor wretch! She had given up so much, and could yet smile at her trouble—' He himself had never surrendered to anything in life. That was what life demanded of you—surrender. For reward it gave you love—this swarthy, skin-deep love that exacted remorseless penalties. What German philosopher was it who said, Woman pays the debt of life not by what she does but by what she suffers? The train rushed in. Gerald busied himself with the luggage, saw that it was loaded, but did not see its owner. He walked rapidly along the carriages, but he could not find her. Well, she was sick of them all probably hiding from him, poor woman. The train moved off, and he turned away. But the station-yard outside was startlingly empty. Horse and trap were gone. The tree was still there but with a man leaning against it, a dirty man with a dirty pipe and a dirty smell. Had he seen a horse and trap? A brown mare? Yes. Trap with yellow wheels. That's it? Oh, uh, a young woman drove away in that. A young woman? Ah, two minutes ago. And he described Lizzie. Out yon, said the dirty man, pointing with his dirty pipe to the marshes. Gerald ran until he saw a way off on the level winding road, the trap bowling along at a great pace. Lizzie was lashing the cob. A damn cat! He puffed large puffs of exasperation and felt almost sick with rage, but there was nothing now to be done except walk back to the black dog, which he began to do. Rage gave place to anxiety, fear of some unthinkable disaster, some tragic horror at the inn. "'What a clumsy fool! All my fault! My own stupidity!' he groaned as he crossed the bridge at the half-distance. He halted there. "'It's dreadful! Dreadful!' A tremor in his blood, the shame of his foolishness, the fear of catastrophe, all urged him to turn back to the station and hasten away from these miserable complications. But he did not do so, for across the marshes at the foot of the uplands, He saw the horse and trap coming back furiously towards him. Orianda was driving it. "'What has happened?' she cried, jumping from the trap. "'Oh, what fear I was in! What's happened?' She put her arms around him tenderly. "'And I was in great fear,' he said with a laugh of relief. "'What has happened?' "'The horse came home. Just trotted up to the door and stood still, covered with sweat and foam, you see. The trap was empty. We couldn't understand it.' "'Anything, unless you had been flung out "'and were bleeding on the road somewhere. "'I turned the thing back and came on at once.' "'She was without a hat. "'She had been anxious and touched him fondly. "'Tell me what's the scare?' "'He told her all. "'But Lizzie was not in the trap,' Orianda declared excitedly. "'She has not come back. "'What does it mean? "'What does she want to do? "'Let us find her. "'Jump up, Gerald.' "'Away they drove again.' but nobody had seen anything of Lizzie. She had gone, vanished, dissolved, and in that strong warm air her soul might indeed have been blown to paradise. But they did not know how, or why. Nobody knew. A vague search was carried on in the afternoon, guarded though fruitless inquiries were made, and at last it seemed clear tolerably clear that Lizzie had conquered her mad impulse or intention or whatever it was, and walked quietly away across the fields to a station in another direction. Part 5 For a day or two longer time resumed its sweet, slow delightfulness, though its clarity was diminished and some of its enjoyment dimmed. A village woman came to assist in the mornings, but Orianda was now seldom able to leave the inn. She had come home to a burden—a happy, pleasing burden that could not often be laid aside, and therefore a somewhat lonely loflin walked the high and low of the country by day, and only in the evenings sat in the parlour with Orianda. Hope, too, was slipping from his heart as even the joy was slipping from his days, for the spirit of vanished Lizzie, defrauded and indicting, hung in the air of the inn, an implacable obsession, a triumphant foreboding that was proved a prophecy when some boys, fishing in the mill dam, hooked dead Lizzie from the pool under the hornbeam tree. Then it was that Laughlin's soul discovered to him a mass of feelings, fine sympathy, futile sentiment, a passion for righteousness, morbid regrets, from which a tragic bias was born. After the dread ordeal of the inquest which gave a passive verdict of found drowned, it was not possible for him to stem this disloyal tendency of his mind. It laid that drowned figure accusatively at the feet of his beloved girl— "'and no argument or sophistry could disperse the venal savour "'that clung to the house of the black dog. "'To analyse or assess a person's failings or deficiencies,' "'he declared to himself, is useless, "'not because such blemishes are immovable, "'but because they affect the mass of beholders in diverse ways. "'Different minds perceive utterly variant figures in the same being. "'To Brown, Robinson is a hero.' to Jones a snob, to Smith a fool. Who then is right? You are lucky if you can put your miserable self in relation at an angle where your own deficiencies are submerged or minimized, and wise if you can maintain your vision of that interesting angle. But embedded in Laughlin's modest intellect there was a stratum of probity that was rock to these sprays of the casuist, and although Oriander grew more alluring than ever— He packed his bag, and on a morning she herself drove him in the gig to the station. Upon that miserable departure it was fitting that rain should fall. The station platform was piled with bushel baskets and empty oil barrels. It rained with a quiet remorselessness. Neither spoke a word. No one spoke, no sound was uttered but the faint flicking of the raindrops. A kiss to him was long and sweet, a good-bye, almost voiceless. "'You will write,' she whispered. "'Yes, I will write.' "'But he does not do so. In London he has not forgotten, but he cannot endure the thought of that countryside. To be far from the maddening crowd is to be mad indeed.' It is only after some trance of recollection, when his fond experience is all delicately and renewingly there, that he wavers. But time and time again he relinquishes or postpones his return, and sometimes he thinks he really will write a letter to his friend who lives in the country. But he does not do so. End of section two. Recording by Thomas Rose